I was in a very volatile relationship with my husband, one that I thought I could just sort of, I'd made my bed, I would lie in it. And, you know, I had a couple of kids, tiny little daughters, one a baby, one a toddler. Just felt like, you know what, I don't want to be a divorced person. I want my kids to grow up better. I want to do better than what happened to me as a child. And so we'll have an intact family no matter what. One day, my husband strangled me. It was a longer story, but strangled me in front of my oldest daughter. And she was, at the time, two years old. Happened. I felt like this is it. I can't forgive and forget any longer. I can't wait around. If When I leave this marriage, I'm not just going to leave this marriage. I will leave a pattern of being abused in my life. My kids deserve better. And at the time, I didn't believed then that I deserved better. I knew they did. And he took the kids and disappeared. Thank you for tuning in to this episode of The On-Call Empath. What do you do when your kids are kidnapped and taken to a foreign country? Well, in this episode, you're going to hear from Liz Meredith, and that's exactly what happened to her. She talks about exactly how she lost her kids and they were kidnapped by her ex-husband and uh, taken to a foreign country. Liz talks about actually going to actually on a hunt to look for them and uh, all the things that she went through step by step. And, uh, you know, for most of us, I know that, you know, we've been through horrific traumatic experiences, but when you get to a level where, you know, kidnapping is involved you know, what do you do? At this point, you know, I wanted to make this episode to let you know that you do not have to live in fear. You could still live your life. There's resources out there. The domestic violence uh, is very common. Um, And if you've gone through, you know, hell and back, this is an episode you definitely want to tune into. So, Again, you know, Liz is a person that's not afraid. She was brave enough to come on this podcast knowing that this uh, crazy person is still out there and could be actually listening. But she still, you know, came on and even wrote a book and is now telling the world exactly what happened. So uh, I hope you enjoy this episode and you get something out of it. With that said, let's get started. You're listening to the On Call Empath Show. Thank you guys for joining me on this episode. I have a amazing guest who's going to share her story that you guys just won't believe. When I heard it, I was just blown away. Uh, her name is Liz Meredith. Liz, how are you doing today? I am doing great, and thank you so much, Raj, for having me on the On-Call Empath. I've been really excited about this. Oh, same here. I've been waiting so long, and when I talked to you the first time, I was, I just, I couldn't, my head couldn't grasp around the story that you were saying, and it was just something, I, I don't think I've had anybody that had anything close to what you're about to kind of share with us. Um, I mean, so before we get started with the, you know, to have you explain, like right now you're currently uh, living in Alaska. Is that correct? That's right. All right. So what do you do right now? Well, I just retired a couple of weeks ago from a long career in juvenile probation before Uh, that child abuse investigator and before that a domestic violence advocate. So presently, I'm pivoting my business at home 
and teaching online courses, doing some speaking gigs, and continuing to write. So it's kind of fun. And with that said, why don't we just dive right in? Can you explain to the audience, I know we have a lot of people that can resonate with your story that are trauma victims, um, a lot of empaths and highly sensitive people. They do tune into this, uh, you know, podcast. So I'm, you know, I'm very, you know, glad that you are able to be brave enough to, you know, come on my podcast to, to finally come out and tell your story. So I'm just going to let you kind of explain it all. So go ahead and let us let us know exactly every detail. Thank you so much. And I love that you give space to have these hard conversations. So thanks for what you do. Oh, no problem. Um, years ago, when I was a much younger woman in about 1990, I was in a very volatile relationship with my husband, one that I thought I could just sort of, I'd made my bed, I would lie in it. And, you know, I had a couple of kids tiny little daughters, one a baby, one a toddler. And I just felt like, you know what? I don't want to be a divorced person. I want my kids to grow up better. I want to do better than what happened to me as a child. And so we'll have an intact family no matter what. And then one day my husband strangled me. It was a longer story, but strangled me in front of my oldest daughter. And she was at the time two years old. It was something that I remember even as he squeeze the air out of my, frankly, out of my life, out of my neck. But as, as it happened, I felt like this is it. I can't forgive and forget any longer. I can't wait around. If when I leave this marriage, I'm not just going to leave this marriage. I will leave a pattern of being abused in my life. My kids deserve better. And at the time I didn't believe then that I deserve better. I knew they did. And that young girls watching this sort of thing happen, it, it could have a huge, long impact on how their relationships would go. And so I left thinking, that's it. You know, I eventually was able to get up, gather my kids, it took quite a while to, to make everything work. But I did not call the police at the time. I called and asked a friend, you know, asked a friend what to do when he had left the room briefly, gathered my kids. And went to a friend's home first, then eventually to a domestic violence shelter. I believed at the time that the key to ending intimate partner violence was really about victims making good choices. I mean, I literally thought that once I left, it would be over. But what I learned was there would be so many unintended consequences that both myself and the kids paid for the next several years. And then four years Four long years after leaving him, after being in a shelter, after being on public assistance, getting assisted living or, um, you know, all of the things that I really never wanted for my life, getting a degree, getting a great job at a domestic violence agency that had helped me four years after that leaving, he took the kids and disappeared. I just want to stop you right there. Just so he just... You came home one day and your kids were just missing. Is that kind of what happened? Or was there any warning signs? Or did you suspect that he was going to do something that crazy? Or just did it just kind of hit you out of left field? It was both. That's such a good question. Because I knew that things continued to ramp up. The stronger I became, the more independent I became, the happier I became, the more it seemed to set him off, my former husband. And so he had threatened when we were married, if you leave me, 
you'll never see these kids again, you know. Um, a couple of times he threatened to disappear with them and go to out of country to his original home in Greece. But that had been so many years. And frankly, at that point, he hadn't visited, you know, spent enough time with his daughters or participated with them in life enough that made me think he would be interested. There had been enough time that passed that I thought, well, it's going to be volatile like this. He will break in the house sometimes. He will leave threatening messages sometimes. He will buy me presents at times inexplicably years after our divorce and show up at creepy places. You know, I mean, just follow me constantly. But this is just how life will go. It seemed like we were so far between those threats and him taking the kids four years is a long time. So when he took them at a time when he had opportunity, the court had just granted him again, unsupervised contact with the girls. He had a weekend with them. And instead of returning them back to the daycare, because we always dropped off at neutral places and picked up our relationship was that volatile that much later. Um, but when I went to the daycare, he'd never dropped the girls off. And it took a while to real, you know, to get the police and, and all of the information that indicated, yes, he took the girls and he left the country. I'm not like a therapist or anything, but just everything that you've said up to this point, it just seems like it goes farther than a narcissist. Are we talking about it like a sociopath or somebody who just is just off their mind, it seems like. What would you what would you describe him as? It is such a good question. And I know, you know, I worked years as a domestic violence advocate back before we really weren't necessarily calling all abusers narcissists or all narcissist abusers. We know that they're two different things. And for him, I mean, I don't, I have a master's degree in psychology now, but I, I've never evaluated him. I would just say <laughs> he was someone who was so incredibly, and, and if I had to guess, I would say there was absolutely some sociopathic tendencies, but he's definitely someone like a lot of individuals who abuse, who literally got their identity having control of their intimate partner. And so I naturally thought as a young person then, okay, well, I left and I never looked back, never asked to get back together with him, didn't reunite. This is the end of that. But no, for him, that identity didn't change. He continued on his path to have control over me. And even as I worked as a domestic violence advocate, I was out of college working at the very place that had helped me. And he was still doing things like slashing the tires, calling and, and saying horrible things that the kids could hear on the old fashioned answering machine. But just beside himself, trying to get the control that he felt he deserved. Meanwhile, he could be very charming with other people for a long time, held down a job, very smart individual. And other people would tell you he was very kind and charming and delightful. And yeah, you know, that definitely sounds um, definitely like there's a lot of people that I've talked to that have described, you know, people that are sociopaths where, um, you know, they can, they can go back and forth. They can really be nice and then come across uh, as one of the care most caringest people that you know, 
And then on the other side, it's like Jackal and Hyde. Um, a lot of the trauma victims do describe what you're describing, but I mean, I don't know how you managed all these years to be with someone like that. When was it when you put your foot down? Obviously, he took the kids. Um, so right after he did that, what what was your first initial reaction? Like, go to the police or file something with the court? Um, I mean, you had no idea where he, he's, he kidnapped them to, correct? I knew that he, his old threats were that he would take the kids and go to Greece and disappear. At that time, I thought, well, maybe he's not in Greece. Maybe he's somewhere else. Maybe he's actually doing this just to, to make me feel even worse <laughs> because he was, he perfected that art of, of getting, you know, finding my vulnerable spot and then exploiting it. So I immediately called the police. When I say immediately, first, I, I it wasn't so immediate. I, I needed to check to make sure that he wasn't, you know, at the, at the house, that he wouldn't answer the phone calls. You know, I, I definitely tried to get a hold of him. And the, when I called dispatch early on, when I called the police or just like making sure, ma'am, he's their father. Are you sure that he didn't just want a little extra time? Could he be, you know, at this place or that place? I mean, <laughs> no one would want to think that a parent would do that awful mm -hmm. deed just to hurt another parent and not give consideration to how devastating that would be to small children. So by the time that I dug in for sure, it was some hours later and I'm like, look, this is not a father wanting to just hang out with the kids. I'm concerned that he's, you know, disappeared based on our history. And then I was able to contact police uh, mm -hmm. effectively. And then after that, the National Center for Missing and Exploited Children was about the next call outside of a couple of friends. Mm -hmm. And they were amazingly helpful. And I would just say for, for listeners either who've gone through an abusive relationship, what always scares me about telling my story is that I'm scaring someone out of making their own choices, but, um, you know, own decisions about whether they leave or stay or, you know, shutting someone down out of a hard situation. But whatever we're going through or whatever our friends are going through, there is help out there. Somewhere in the world, there is the right help and support and a peer group that can help an individual in crisis such as myself. So calling the police, that didn't produce immediate results, but it was the right first call. Calling the National Center uh, for Missing and Exploited Children, even if someone expects or suspects that their child could be taken at some point because of past threats, they have helpful information. And uh, it certainly was amazing to go through awful situations with my coworkers, domestic right. advocates who knew that this was an extension of leaving abuse and an unintended so, consequence. So after your kids were kidnapped, what was that like? Um, I mean, I guess, how did you feel inside the first week? I mean, did people take you seriously uh, when you did report it? Did they just brush you off because they knew that oh, uh, this is probably just, you know, it's just you know a family issue. It's it doesn't seem very serious. When when did you actually just start to say to yourself like, hey, this is a serious thing? And how did you cope, especially being without your kids and being alone? I know you said you had some support groups, but um, how did you cope every day, day to day? 
it was not easy. I will just say, I if I hadn't had a life that had already been pretty turbulent in spots, and I mean really turbulent in spots, I think it might have been more difficult. But by then, I'd been through so much that I think the one funny thing is that I'd already developed some strengths and knowing when to get help, knowing how to employ self-care. Also, there was a part of me that, and there's still to this day, maybe a dysfunctional part of me, but that has always distanced myself from my life. So it's like I'm in it. I'm watching it happen and thinking, this is a story. One day, this is a story that will have a, a happy ending. And I absolutely told myself, this story will end and maybe you'll write it, maybe you won't, but your life story, all of our life stories has a beginning, a middle and an end. And this is not the final piece. And I think one thing that helped also was when I had been an abused wife and first left. And again, I had four years to, to kind of gather some strengths and, and work out how you pivot through a crisis. But I'd already had a friend say, look, you can't let this affect you all day long, all day, every day. You got to be strong when you're going through something hard, even if for all of us going through COVID. Have yourself a worry hour every day where you dedicate your time to feeling sorry for yourself, to maybe having a cry, to being anxious and saying, wow, what if I never see my kids again? What if I can't afford to get them back? What if what if one of them dies while he's, you know, while he is supposed to be supervising them? She said, you could lose your marbles having these thoughts all day long. So try to make it to where you schedule time to have that worry hour. But the other days of your life have, and the other hours, they've got to be focused on getting the girls back. Or, you know, or actually, that was before my kids were missing. But before, you know, getting your feet on the ground, taking care of the details you need to, getting on this wait list, that one, um, eating scheduling, working, all of those things. Right. So it had helped in a weird way. And I think it shocked my former husband that I was ready yeah. for the marathon ahead. You know, it wasn't a race. It was a marathon. But he'd already pushed so hard that I had some strengths and I had a great community. I couldn't have done it myself, you know, so that was wonderful. And I just want to point out, especially to the listeners, I know there's a lot of people that may have gone through domestic abuse or they're just going through a hard time, like you said, with COVID. Um, I'm not a big believer where you should be positive 24 hours a day and just not think about, you know, things that stress you out. I mean, in your case, like I know for me, I would be a wreck. I'd be thinking the worst scenario every minute, every time, 24 hours a day. But just the way you went about it to allocate some time to actually think and digress and then go back on track, I think that's more realistic than just trying to like, oh, everything will be fine. You know, everything is hunky-dory and it's not and you know it's not. And so I know like that would wreak havoc on someone's life, especially if your kids are ki- kidnapped. I mean, who who in their right mind is going to have a normal life, a sleep cycle, you know, mental health, all that's going to be whacked. And for you to sit here and, you know, talk about all this on this podcast is amazing that you've been through all this and now you're, you're actually giving your experience to help others and inspire people, which is amazing. But I, like I said, I mean, the, everything that you've gone through, 
there's someone listening on this podcast that is probably going through a similar, maybe not as, you know, uh, crazy as, as your story, but maybe has somebody who has done something very terrible to them that has traumatized them, whether it's a psychopath, you know, narcissist, somebody who's really made their life upside down. To those people, I want you to uh, kind of, if you can kind of tell us what uh, what is maybe some tips that you can um, kind of give that you, I know that you already gave some, but maybe somebody that's listening right now who's, you know, at the end of their rope and they're just worrying 24 hours a day about, you know, something that may or may not happen. Exactly. I think that is why my friend's advice was so important because we absolutely have to feel our feelings, like you said, and not put a pretty bow on them. But on the other hand, try to manage some of the chaos that we're going through so that we can sort the details. And so for me, it has always made sense to, first of all, not feel like I have to solve things on my own because I just can't. I mean, I absolutely, when when things are so serious that your kids are missing and in a foreign country, I do not have the skill set and I shouldn't expect that I would, nor should anyone else feel that they would have that. But even if they're going through lesser things, it's just a horrible, scary, out of control feeling to be going to be abused. And often isolation accompanies that, right? Where somebody who is abusive is going to try to keep an individual away from their family, their friends, their hobbies even their dreams. And so what's really important for listeners to understand is connecting with a support. Even these this day as we're going through COVID-19 and everything is online pretty much, there are still so many support avenues to bounce ideas off of other people when safe. I don't know if that person would be living with the abuser. They'd have to be very, very careful. Um, that there's help in forums online, that there's still support um, on even social media, but private accounts to, to get some support, but to make sure that they break out of the isolation and understand they don't have to put a p- pretty bow on it, but they definitely want to connect with others to try as much as possible to make a mental list or a very, very confidential, you know, very secret uh, email list to herself, even if she has a private email account that she can use of things to get done every day toward whatever goal there is, uh, the goal that she has. I think one of the reasons I like to refer people to uh, intimate partner violence agencies, you know, we called them battered women shelters, whatever you call them, But the reason I like to make that referral is because advocates, professional advocates are confidential. They're not going to make choices on behalf of a victim. They're not going to insist that he or she leave the relationship or that they stay in the relationship. They shouldn't be giving that kind of input. They're there to talk about safety, to provide information and support and to give affirming messages, to say things instead of saying things like a friend would say, I can't believe you put up with that. Why don't you leave? You're smarter than I, you know, I know you're smarter than this. What's wrong with you? And that's some of the messages that we as family sometimes or good friends 
if we don't say it, sometimes our voice accidentally indicates that kind of a message. (laughs) But what we want to have someone say instead is, you know, you deserve to be treated well. You deserve to be safe. I believe you and nobody has the right to harm another person. And instead of focusing so much on whether the individual, focusing on the abuser, really for the first time, focusing back on the person going through this horrible set of circumstances, giving information, support, but then having the faith to know that she will make her own best decision when the right time comes. And the reason we don't want to give pat advice like you need to leave or you need to stay is because we're not going to be living with those unintended consequences. We know that most people don't have their children kidnapped and taken up out of country, but abuse often escalates to death or far worse violence before or just after leaving. So that's why we don't want to be telling them what to do because we're not going to be living that. I mean, I'm sure everyone's wondering how did you get your kids back? And then when you did, were you scared out of your mind that your abuser, your husband was going to come looking for you and try to kill you? Or, I mean, how do you know he's not listening right now? I mean, <laughs> don't know that. And that's, again, that mind discipline, really, because I could live my whole life worrying about what he's doing or, you know, all of that. And frankly, he could still kill me today. There's no question that that could in fact happen. And I don't have any control over that, but I live my best life. Uh, I didn't expect that it would turn out as well as it did. (laughs) To be honest with you, I had a real shaky start in my home life too. So, so, and then marrying him. Ah, So it took two years. It took a little over two years. It took a community effort that stretched from Anchorage, Alaska, all the way to Greece with some help in Germany and this and that. I mean, literally it took so much uh, support, fundraising. This was a, I made $10 an hour at the time that I had my kids kidnapped. This was a $100,000 problem. You better believe that I was not going to be able to do it on my own. There was just no way. And I didn't have the kind of family support at that time and certainly not the finances that would have made that possible. I mean, none of us are trained in how to get your kids out of a foreign country. By the time we reunited, my kids no longer spoke English and they had been through some things that to this day, now my young daughters are are not so young anymore. I am 56 now. My daughters are in their 30s. And you know, just a couple of weeks ago, one of my children told me something that I had never heard about her time in Greece. And it wasn't until her 30s that she felt safe enough to say it. So it really was, and that's why it was a complex answer, I know, but it took a lot of lawyer support. It took going to Greece twice. My coworkers pooled their leave to give me extra paid leave so that I could afford it. It took me getting arrested in a foreign country. I mean, it took everything and more. And eventually, two years later, we did return home. And then those threats started back. So it wasn't an easy happily ever after. But I am telling you, I not only went through a lot of hard times, there were people who gave above and beyond. And that's something that as someone who feels like, yeah, I've been victimized at times, really had to decide to latch on to that because... 
I'd not only experienced the worst life offered my poor children as well, but I also experienced some unusual human kindness and it was pretty incredible and it was life defining. And, and that was something that I really wanted to grasp onto and pay it forward. That's why I wrote the book also, because I knew the story could help other people. But I also wanted to honor that people in Greece were amazing, as well as people Mm. in the States. And I didn't necessarily deserve any of it. I just was very fortunate to have it. Right. And I mean, it's just so amazing that you're able to talk about it. It's hard. I mean, just the way you're talking, I mean, I, I don't know what, what, I would do in that situation if, you know, especially if, if kids, if I had kids and they were kidnapped and they were taken to another country, I mean, it looks like you had the right support, you had the right mindset. But with that said, um, I'll give you the last word. If you can kind of give a shout out to maybe somebody who, um, is going through it right now alone and they're going through maybe a abuser who's threatening them and no one's taking them seriously, or they just keep tormenting them mentally. It could be an ex, it could be a former relationship or anybody. What can you say to that person that's listening right now? What can they do right now when they get off this podcast to kind of get in the right direction and, and, in your experience, I think you're very well qualified to answer that. And I thank you. That is such a great question. And I have to say also a big shout out to the empaths in their lives who are also feeling tortured. We call them secondary survivors now, but it torture, <laughs> you know, going through it with even a coworker, if you're an empath or a family member, a friend. And uh, that's hard. And I do, in fact, I have a course on Teachable for those very reasons, you know, to help people understand what to say. It's very challenging, but I will say for someone going through it right now, they should know that help is definitely out there for them and that they don't have to make a decision this very moment as to how to get in or how to get out of that relationship or how to stay in it and make it better. Don't, don't boggle your mind with making a huge life decision before you decide to get support. And so even a place like, as for example, domesticshelters.org, or if you have a moment completely alone with the safe, unmonitored phone, calling one, I think it is 800-799-SAFE. Every every person in every country, there should be, and even I just Google searched Laos as an example, the country of Laos and intimate partner violence. There are hotlines and places there for support but you got to be careful how you get it and making sure that you erase your, if you share a computer, you want to be real safe. Just understanding that everyone has the right to be treated well. This is not necessarily have to define all of that person's life that in increments while you're getting information and support from a neutral party, don't expect your friends and your family to be your hotline because they will have a bias and they will be emotionally jarred, and they may not be prepared for taking on the complexities of the relationship. They may say the wrong thing, even if they don't mean to. And so it's really okay to get help somewhere else and to preserve sort of those relationships. It's not that you can't tell people what's going on, please do. But on the other hand, you might want to temper your expectation that they'll say the right thing, because none of us were trained to know what to say unless you work 
in the system. There's legal aid available for getting help with protective orders in a lot of communities. There's the hotlines, Facebook groups, there's still help and support and no one needs to go through this alone or feel ashamed of themselves that they're in it or that they're thinking about getting out of it. Thank you so much, Liz. You know, it's been a true honor for you to come on my podcast and brave enough to, you know, tell your story to the world and help others. Um, with that said, can you just tell us your website and your book and where we can find you if, if somebody out there, uh, you know, wants to reach out to you? And thank you for asking. I'm at lameredith.com and I have a newsletter. I'm a, I've got an author Facebook page also. And my book is titled Pieces of Me, Rescuing My Kidnapped Daughters. It's available wherever books are sold. And it's also an audiobook format. And right now it's optioned. We'll see if it happens to be a television movie. So I'm excited about that. I'm so excited. I'll be the first one to be like, I had her on my show first. Thank you so much for having me on On Call Podcast. I love the podcast. Thank you so much. And like I said, when I first, you know, uh, read your bio, I'm like, wow, this is, this is crazy. Like, and, and just the way you're talking it, I'm sure like when it happened, you were like going through the motions, but on the flip side, when you're looking out, you know, now things have hopefully calmed down for you. You know, one thing I want to point out to my listeners is you can't live in fear. And, you know, as you can see from Liz, you know, story, you know, she does, she's living her life, even though she knows that, you know, this crazy guy could come back anytime. She hasn't stopped one bit. She's going on podcasts. She's writing books. She's um, basically helping those who are going through this same thing. So, I mean, hopefully you can take something out of this podcast and see that you do not have to live underneath a rock and lock your doors and not live your life. You could still you know, continue to live your life and, and learn from your mistakes as, as Liz did. So Liz, thank you so much again for being on this podcast. Uh, it was a pleasure having you. Thank pleasure you. I you. have enjoyed it so much. And thank you, Raj. I'm so glad to meet you. Appreciate you it. too. All right. Well, thank you so much. With that said, guys, let me know how I'm doing on the Apple iTunes. Uh, if you can give me a review, it helps me bring in more guests. We're getting closer to that 50th episode. I'm so excited. And uh, if you guys have any questions, feel free to reach out to my Facebook group, The On-Call Empath. Uh, I'd love to have you join. But with that said, we are out. You're listening to The On-Call Empath.